This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you're with us for the very first time for the next hour, we'll be taking questions from God's Word, maybe a passage you've been studying you'd like some clarification on, or possibly an issue in your life or ministry you'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if I can help, it will be by God's grace I'll give you that help. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us. Again, the local number is 525-1859. We have a lot of folks who listen through the internet because WAGP live streams at WAGP.net. You can also download us into your uh, cell phones as well and listen to us directly uh, through our WAGP radio app or many through TuneIn Radio, however that works for you. When you call, you can remain anonymous, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, or you can go on the air live. And I think we have a live caller, so let's go ahead and start there this morning. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning, listener. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. I had a question for you. Uh, it's a two-part question. The first part is, how do you know that the 66 books that make up the Bible today alone are the word, the only word from God to man, rather than, let's say, the Catholic Bible or even other spiritual books from other religions, and that God didn't also speak through Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, Buddha, Gandhi, Deepak Chopra, Rhonda Byrne, etc.? <laughs> right. that's, right. that's the first Okay. First question I have for you. And then the second part would be, what are the dangers for someone who doesn't read the Bible or who would take a liberal or spiritual view of the Word of God and uh, adds it to these other writings? Uh, your, your last question, what is the danger for someone who doesn't read the Bible and what add the Bible to the other writings on equal footing, or what was uh, clarified? Yeah, there. yeah, it would be what would be the danger for someone who doesn't know what's written in the Bible, doesn't read the Bible, or has taken a spiritual view of the Word of God that it is on equal footing with other writings of the major religions. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, a couple thoughts. One is uh, I've written a little book that you can get on Amazon. It's how to prove the Bible is true. And in that booklet, I go through uh, five tests of showing the unique inspiration of the Word of God. Uh, I also have taught a course on bibliology over about 40 weeks on Wednesday nights, and we taught it very in-depth, really on a master's level, through our Institute of Biblical Studies. And I have one of those whole sections, if you really want an in-depth, long answer, it would take you about three hours to go through it. I I have a whole section on the canonicity of Scripture, but I'll just give you the short answer. Basically, you know, there are books that were written between, of course, the the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the uh, coming of the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew. 
And Matthew, I believe, was actually the first book chronologically to have been written. And it fits as such in our English Bibles. In either case, between those two points, there was a 400-year period when there was no prophet in Israel. During that period of time, there were books that were written, uh, intertestamental books, uh, some of which, not all, but some of which have made it into the Catholic Bible and some have made it into the Orthodox Bible. Um, The Orthodox Bible, for instance, has 151 Psalms to it. We have 150 in the Hebrew and in the English Bible. They have an additional Psalm that was supposedly done by David. Clearly, it was not, it was not inspired by God. They have additional books like the Catholics that they weave through their Old Testament. So like if you were to open up a Catholic Bible, Daniel wouldn't have 12 chapters. It would have 14 chapters to it. And they actually took two intertestamental books and made one chapter 13 and the other chapter 14. So, you know, why do we not acknowledge those as inspired? Not to mention there were other books that were written uh, after the apostles were gone. Uh, We usually call those uh, pseudepigraphal books. Pseudo, of course, meaning false. Graphe. Uh, writing, and so they're, they're false writings, and the gospel according to St. Thomas, for instance, the gospel according to St. Barnabas, and so forth, a, a lot of books like that that never made it into Holy Scripture. So why not? Well, a number of reasons. There were tests of canonicity. There were certain ways in which we could recognize whether a book was inspired. And interestingly, when you come into the New Testament and you think about Old Testament canonicity, Uh, They never quote any of the intertestament books. Now, I'm not saying that the intertestament books aren't helpful at some point in shedding light on what took place during that 400-year period. In fact, in the very first edition of the King James Bible that was produced in 1611, the apocryphal books, the intertestament books, were, were included in the 1611 version. The Roman Catholics came back and said, you see, these Protestants recognize that these books are inspired. And so in 1613, they removed those books uh, from the King James Bible, and they have never since appeared in a Protestant edition. There have been some ecumenical editions of the Bible, like the Oxford Annotated Edition, in which the apocryphal books have not been interspersed, but typically put in a separate place, much like it was in the 1611 King James Version. Um, But interestingly, when you're in the New Testament, they don't quote or interact with the apocryphal books. Now, some would take exception to that. They would say, well, what about this one quotation in the book of Jude? Well, the quotation that Jude makes was a tradition that had gone down through the centuries that Jewish people would speak about, uh, about a, a fight between, um, you know, over the body of Moses. And they would say, well, that's, you know, that's from uh, a book called The Ascension of Moses. Now, The Ascension of Moses just took a, a verbal oral tradition and included it in their book. And they were actually correct in that. But that doesn't make that book inspired. What makes that saying true is when God includes that oral tradition and he puts it into the writ of Holy Scripture such that he says, yes, that's a tradition that you can, I put my stamp of approval on, you can believe and you can hold to uh, as the infallible word of God. So when you see the Lord Jesus quoting the Old Testament, he very clearly, either holistically or by individual books, never once quotes the apocryphal books. 
I'm in uh, right now in Romans 9 and 10, and the Apostle Paul extensively is quoting the Old Testament, Psalms, Isaiah, Hosea, and so forth. Um, and again, he, he never quotes in the books that he gave us in the New Testament once any intertestament book. In fact, when you read the intertestament books, you discover that they are different in what they say and how they say it. Uh, our Catholic friends will often say, well, the Catholic Church gave us the Bible. They, they didn't give us the Bible. God gave us the Bible. Or sometimes Protestants will misspeak and they say, well, you know, the church determined what would be inspired. No, the church did not determine. No church, no denomination, no Christian ever determined what would be inspired. They recognized what was inspired. And so as you read the Bible, it reads differently from any book. And it has a different effect than any book. Uh, When the writer of the Hebrews describes God's infallible, inerrant word, and that's how I would view it, because people today, and I have a whole section in that course on bibliology, on eight views on inspiration, because sometimes people today say, well, I believe the Bible's inspired, and they mean something entirely different by that terminology. They may mean, well, it's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired or it's inspired like other religious works were inspired. Uh, that's not how the term is used in the, in the Word of God. In either case, in Hebrews 4, it says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so as God's saints read these books, uh, there was a, a dimension to them that is different from any other book. I've, I've read the Quran cover to cover, had to read it in seminary. Uh, I read the gospel according to St. Thomas. Um, when you read it, it's just totally different. I've read the Book of Mormon. Um, and so there are certain tests of canonicity. There's an aliveness to the Bible. There's an affirmation Uh, from the Lord Jesus himself, what books were inspired? Is it related to the Old Testament canon? He predicted, of course, his apostles uh, overseeing the New Testament. And so what determined an apostle to be an apostle? Well, he was affirmed as an apostle, not only by the fact that he was personally selected by Christ, not only by the fact that he had seen the resurrected Lord, but as 2 Corinthians 12, 12 indicates there are certain signs, wonders, and miracles that accompanied his ministry. And so not everyone could raise the dead. Uh, those were signs that marked a man as an apostle. Now, there are people today who want to claim the apostolic gifts, but it's a farce. They're phonies, they're fakes, they're frauds. I don't know how else to say it. Um, but there, if everyone could do the signs, wonders, and miracles that an apostle could do, then Paul's argument for his own apostleship in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve is totally meaningless. So uh, there are tests of canonicity, and if you read the booklet that I wrote, How to Prove the Bible is True, I go through five tests for canonicity that you might be helped by. Lay that aside, let me also just add that people who may deny the Bible to be true, still when they hear it, it has the same effect on them. Uh, It is the written word of God. God didn't write the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Upanishads or any other work you can think of. He only inspired the Holy Scripture. 
And so certainly for the Christian, he's in danger if he doesn't know his Bible because he can easily be swayed into falsehood. And that's why Paul exhorts Timothy in the pastoral epistles to preach the word, to preach sound doctrine. In the word sound is actually a Greek word that we get our word healthy from, preach healthy doctrine. So God has given his people a plumb line, and that's the problem in the day that we live in. We, we live in a day where the Bible is no longer really being taught, and we've designed the Lord's Day not with the believer in mind, but the unbeliever, and we've adopted a paradigm that is foreign to the New Testament as to what is to take place on the Lord's Day. The apostles' teaching found in this book is what we are to concentrate on. Um, so again, uh, that's just a real brief answer, but I spent three hours on it on Wednesday nights, and you might want to um, call Search the Scriptures. Actually, go to our searchthescriptures.org app, and you can go to the course on Bibliology, and you can download any of the messages for free. Uh, I think it's section four uh, in the course, uh, but it will be obvious, and it's entitled The Canonicity of the Bible. There are seven sections to it, and uh, I go through a very, very detailed explanation as to um, why the intertestamental books should not be accepted, how the early church would recognize a work that was inspired and a work that was false. And today, as God's people, we need to know the word because it becomes the plumb line for discerning truth from error. So, you know, I was talking to someone just on Sunday and, you know, she was talking about this woman's Bible teacher that she loved. And, you know, I think this woman is in so much error, but this dear saint didn't know, um, you know, the word well enough to recognize that error. Uh, someone called me last week and I, rather than answer it on the Bible line, uh, she wanted to know about a book that was recently done called Jesus Calling. I said, look, it's filled with error. It is filled with error. And I wrote a blog on it, which people can read at searchthescriptures.org if they click at the top of the page on blogs. And I and all I do is evaluate the introduction, don't even get into the heart of the book. I, it would have become a, a dissertation of sorts. Uh, so much error in it. But today, people are so naive because they are not taught the scriptures that they think works like that are actually spiritual works when they're actually filled with error. So anyway, good question. We could spend hours on it, but the phone has been ringing off the hook. So let's go to the next caller. Indeed, 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. Or you can always email us at tbl at net. Uh, let's go to our next caller now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Oh, stand by. We're having a little bit of a difficult time dropping one of our... There we go. Are you there, caller? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Thanks for calling today. All right. Could you talk to me about the difference between the term uh, conversion and regeneration? And do you consider that there's something that happens? simultaneously to a person, or does one precede the other? It's a great question, and uh, it depends on who you're speaking with. Some of our dear friends in the Reformed camp, hyper-Calvinists, five-point Calvinists, they would argue that because man is dead in sin, 
dead in his trespasses and sin, that he has no capability on his own to make any kind of a decision for God. And, and I would agree with that. Unlike the Arminian view that would basically teach, uh, based on Jacob Arminius's views, that man has a spark left within him and has the capability all by himself to come to the Lord. I don't believe that's true. The scripture says we're dead in trespasses and sins. It says there's none who seeks God, no, not one. Uh, If um, you are the kind of person that you say, well, I can't remember a time when I didn't seek the Lord. That was only because God initiated with you first. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And sometimes people build theology off of experience rather than putting their experience under the authority of scripture. So experience goes over the Bible instead of under the Bible. And this is certainly true in Arminianism. You know, they would say, well, you can lose salvation. And they will look around and give you case examples. Well, I could give you just as many case examples where that was not the case. You don't do theology by experience. You evaluate experience in light of what God has revealed in the Scripture. And so when you um, think about man unable to seek God, God has to take the initiative. Now, I do believe that he initiates with all. Uh, When he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But God is the initiator. Uh, Paul will say to the church at Corinth, by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. So it is the work of a sovereign God. But that does not mean, unlike my Reformed friends teach, that you are regenerated Uh, before you exercise faith. And they don't want to um, say that, well, God can work in my heart and then I can exercise faith because then they say, well, that faith then becomes a work and we're not saved by works. Faith is not a work. And the verse that grace and faith are brought together for by grace, you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It doesn't stand for faith. It stands for the whole by grace through faith process. The word grace is masculine. The word faith is feminine. Had he meant it to stand for faith, he would not have used a neuter pronoun, but he did. The whole by grace through faith process is God's work. It is his gift because, again, no one seeks after God. God initiates with man. Even in the garden when Adam had rebelled against God, God comes in asking questions of Adam, not because he needs information. God always asks questions, not for himself, but for us. Where are you, Adam? He was trying to show Adam where he was. It's not that we sought God, but God sought us. First John teaches. God is the initiator. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And so in the New Testament epistles, it's very clear that regeneration takes place at the moment you believe. It's a simultaneous act. And so God says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus, and he says in him, you could say in Christ, that's who the pronoun refers to, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, You are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, an earnest, a guarantee. Uh, Different translations render it differently. But the thought is he's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So the uh, verbs here are very clear. You listen 
to the message of truth, which is defined as the gospel. The gospel is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. And it's articular here. It's not just gospel, glad tidings, but the gospel. He's referring to a specific kind of glad tidings or good news. After listening, uh, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. So you have to hear the gospel. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but you can't call upon him and whom you've not first heard about. So you have to listen. You have to hear the message. And when you believe it at that moment, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this, by the way, is totally consistent with what you would expect, because this is really what the prophets had revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both speak of a new covenant that God would bless the nation of Israel with. Uh, there's still um, uh, there's still a fulfillment that is going to be realized among the nation of Israel, but it is being experienced in the body of Christ today. And the writer of the Hebrews quotes this passage from Jeremiah to remind us that it is indeed being fulfilled in the church today. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, because, therefore, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So there is a cause-effect relationship that is described between forgiveness and the fulfillment of the new covenant. So God says, uh, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within them, and they're going to all know the Lord. It won't just be a certain few that will have this special relationship, God's anointed in the Old Testament, but all of God's people from the greatest to the least, whether it's a Moses or a Moses' fifth cousin, uh, they're all going to know the Lord from the greatest to the least. Why? Because their sin will be forgiven. More, I will give a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Again, there is the Ezekiel quote from Ezekiel 36. So here in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, there's a promise of the Spirit coming to permanently indwell and seal the believer. And so Paul describes him as the earnest, as the guarantee that what God started, he will complete. But it's connected to the forgiveness of sin. And that's why even John the Baptist, who had a very special relationship with the Holy Spirit, did not have the same kind of relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit of God today. Even King David, he made a prayer in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's an old covenant prayer. No New Testament saint would ever have to pray that. David feared because of his heinous sin that the Spirit of God would depart from him, just as he saw the Spirit of God depart from Saul. But no old No new covenant saint needs to pray such a thing because we're sealed with the Spirit of God for the coming day of redemption. He's our guarantee, our mark that God is going to complete our salvation. 
And so that's why Jesus could say there was no one ever born of a woman who is greater than John. John was the greatest man ever born of a woman. But he says, I say to you, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because John died prior to the fulfillment of the new covenant. And the new covenant, the New Testament, the new deal was enacted on Golgotha when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sin. And because of that, uh, at his ascension, he could send the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. So regeneration takes place after conversion, not before conversion. And my hyper-Calvinist friends are just wrong. The simple reading of Scripture is very plain, and to distort the Scripture and to say, well, first you're born again, uh, or first you're uh, regenerated, and they'll use both terms, and then you believe. You know, I, I've talked to some of my Reformed friends before, and I say, oh, he's so close to, to salvation. And, oh, he's already saved. I said, he hasn't exercised faith yet, but he's already saved. Um, because God's already regenerated him, and because he's regenerated him, that's why he's going to believe. Well, that's not true, and that's manipulating the Word of God to fit a system of theology that is not revealed through the plain reading of Scripture. Anyway, great question. Let's go to our next caller who's been patiently waiting. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. Thanks for holding. Good morning. Uh, we're having a little problem dropping some of our uh, calls here. Uh, we're going to go ahead we'll and try them again. lock this person and take this one down. There, oh, there we go. Hopefully we didn't lose that one caller. Are you there, caller? Oh, I'm so sorry we lost them. For some you can call reason. back. Yeah. But we've had a, a bunch of questions dictated. And by the way, you can also email us directly here into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Let's go to our next dictated question that someone just called in a minute or two indeed, ago. Indeed. Indeed. Oh, there's our caller now. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. Hi. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? Thank you. I've got a question on Proverbs eighteen twenty four. All right. Um, I've looked at a few translations, and the two translations that seem to be the most extreme are the NASB, which says, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then the translation that shows the most differing uh, translation is King James, which says, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. Right. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. So I'm pretty confused here. Well, it's a it's a fair question, and uh, it's a good question. And the King James, uh, which other translations followed, the Geneva translation, and later the King James, which really came out of the Geneva translation, he that would hath friends must show himself friendly. Um it's interesting because here here's the challenge that the King James had when it was being unfolded and translated. In fact, you meet some 1611 King James people only who will tell you that, listen, anything other than the King James is sheer heresy. It's error. You should not believe it. You should not embrace it. Um, you know, because uh, only the King James Version should be trusted. Interestingly, if you read the King James preface, which you cannot get any longer, 
in a King James Bible when you go to buy one. But in the 1611 edition of the King James Bible, uh, they had a preface that shared some of their thought processes that unfolded when they were translating God's Word into a, a readable English translation. Prior to that, the major translation that was being used was the Geneva Bible. In fact, when the pilgrims came to the United States, they weren't reading the King James Bible. Uh, The early Americans were reading the Geneva Bible. In either case, the Geneva Bible became challenging because the English language was changing and evolving. Um, God's Word is the same. It never changes. And so a good translation asks, well, what word today in English or Greek or Aramaic, the three languages that God gave the Bible in, uh, what word today in our receptor tongue best represents that Hebrew or Greek word? And so in the preface, and by the way, you can buy now a last year, well, two, a couple years ago in, in uh, 2011, uh, three years ago, uh, there was an anniversary 400th year edition of the King James Bible, where they um, you could you could buy a copy of it with the uh, introduction, the preface that they had originally, but it was modernized in terms of the actual typeset in the English. For instance, even the typeset in the 1611 King James Bible, there's a lot of letters that look somewhat foreign to us. The letter S looked more like um, a cursive F in English. Even the letters were formed slightly differently. In fact, when people say, well, I believe in the 1611 King James Bible, the truth is when they read the old King James in deference to the new King James, they are not reading the 1611. They're reading actually the fifth revision, the 1769 translation. With all that said, in the preface to the King James Bible, they said there's a lot of words that we do not understand. Uh, We realize that there will be later editions of the Bible, especially as more manuscripts are found, that will help clarify the meanings of words. And, And indeed that happened. In fact, there's actually two editions of the 1611 King James. There was an edition that came out that they finished and they sent to the printer and they continued translating and they got more sources. Sometimes there's uh, sources in first century Greek that would help illuminate the meaning of a word. Uh, what we call uh, especially hapax legomenos. A hapax legomena is a word that is used once in the Bible. And so sometimes if you have a word that's only used once, you can't see how it's used in other passages to compare and contrast to help illuminate the meaning. And you have to understand, too, that for hundreds of years, God's people had ignored the original languages of the Bible. And so there was a resurgence during the time of the Reformation where people started to once again study God's word. Um, There was a translation of the Bible in the New Testament that was um, that was done, and when they came to the end of the Revelation, they didn't have, for instance, the last six verses of the Revelation. Uh, there was no Greek manuscript at the time, and so the brother who did that uh, translation said, "Well, what I'll do is I'll make my own Greek translation." So he went to the Latin Vulgate and translated the Latin Vulgate into Greek. 
Uh, Later, they found manuscripts that actually said it just like God said it. So when the King James was being done, they had limited manuscripts in terms of the older manuscripts, but manuscripts were since found and that illuminated. So the King James says, you know, man has that will have friends, uh, must show himself friendly. And, you know, there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Where were they reading from? They were reading from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They weren't translating the Hebrew text with Proverbs. They were translating from the Greek text of Proverbs. And there were some practical reasons for that. Some of the translators were limited in their ability to know and speak and to read Hebrew. And so, but they were fluent in Greek. And so there was a translation done about 200 years before Christ called the Septuagint. And very often in the New Testament, you will see the Septuagint quoted. Uh, Paul will very often quote the Septuagint. Other times they're quoting the Hebrew Bible. And so sometimes when you, uh, like in the NASB, you'll see an Old Testament quote, and it's all in large caps. That tells you it's from the Old Testament. And if you have a Bible with marginal notes, you can go out into the margin and say, oh yeah, that's from Isaiah 9. And you go to Isaiah 9 and Well, it says the same thing, but it doesn't read exactly the same way. But the message is essentially the same. That's because they're quoting the Septuagint. Why did they do that? Because most Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew. When the kingdom was split, as God had prophesied, that if they would not repent, God would judge them. And so you had the 10 northern tribes carried away by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And 132 years later, the Babylonians came down and carried away the two southern tribes named after the larger of the two, Judah. And so the people were dispersed. And as they went into foreign cultures, some of them came back. Many did not. And in the process, they adapted to the language of the people. And the lingua lingua franca became Greek, much like what English is today as the international language, what French was 100 years ago. Greek was at one point. And so many Jewish people didn't read uh, Hebrew, they read Greek. And so a translation was done, just like most English people today don't read Hebrew or Greek, and they're reading English only, so they read the Bible in their own tongue. And so the translators of the King James were limited in their ability to read Hebrew. And when they came to a difficult text and they weren't sure as to what it meant, they would often then go to the Greek translation of the Bible, which may or may not have been accurate. Whenever it's quoted in the New Testament, it's accurate because God puts his stamp of approval on it. But not every single translation that has been done is necessarily accurate. For instance, in my Bible, in virtually every translation, if you read Malachi 2.16, it says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. Well, in the Russian Bible, which they've used for the last, you know, 300 years, and they've come up with newer translations of the Russian Bible since the fall of communism, um, but Malachi 2.16 reads, if you hate her, divorce her. Well, wait a minute. If you hate or divorce her or either God of Israel hate divorce. Well, when the Russian Bible was being done, uh, they were limited in the manuscripts that they had. And so they were actually uh, using a Aramaic translation to come up with that. And it was very inaccurate. And so 
again, there, there are some minor differences, and I cover this in my course on bibliology. In fact, in section six, I deal with all the differences in the translations and so forth. God inspired the, the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. But sometimes the way a translation is done may or may not accurately reflect the way God originally said it. And of course, the King James translators recognized that they were limited in the resources that they had. And so in, the, in their own preface, they acknowledged that there would be other translations that would follow that would add clarity to their work and preciseness to their work. But even the minor differences that we have in the different translations changes absolutely nothing doctrinally in terms of what we believe or how we should behave as Christians. Anyway, it's a good question. Uh, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next caller. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at net. Our next caller actually would like to know whether it is okay to be cremated. Is it biblical? Well, I did a funeral last uh, week, and I uh, affirmed the people, and you have to be sensitive here, but I affirmed the people, and I said, you know, you did the right thing by burying your loved one today, because God's method of burial is always, of dealing with the body is always burial, never cremation, never in the Bible. And so when we bury our loved one, it may cost you a little bit more, but it doesn't have to. You don't have to buy a $5,000 casket. If you will ask, you can buy, if you want, a $700 casket. You can bring the cost down dramatically. In either case, um, God's method was always burial. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were buried. You come into the New Testament, John the Baptist was buried. Ananias and Sapphira, disobedient Christians, but they were buried. 1 Corinthians 15 assumes that God's people will bury their loved ones. And when God himself performs the funeral of Moses in the very last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, he, Yahweh, buried Moses. So God himself gave an affirmation for burial. Cremation has become popular, but it's not something that you will find in the word of God. Uh, The picture was always burial. And so when we bury our loved ones, we are affirming that just like a seed is put in the ground and life will come from what appears to be dead, even so when we place the body in the ground, we are affirming our belief in the doctrine of the resurrection. Listen, when a pastor does your funeral and there's no body, you've lost a lot of punch to that funeral. Listen, I've done hundreds of funerals. I have a stack of brochures of people's funerals I've done that's five inches thick. I've done hundreds of funerals. Even the atmosphere is different in a funeral when there's a body there. God has a way of bringing home the reality of death. It's right in front of you. There's often a a brokenness of heart when there's a body present, when there's nothing there at all but some picture up on the altar. And so I tell my people, if you want to do it biblically, then bury. Cremation is rather new in the realm of church history. The Unitarians during the 1870s, in defiance of evangelical Bible-believing Christians, the Unitarians whose theology had evolved to the point where they were denying openly the resurrection of the body, in defiance of what the Scripture said and what most Christians believed, they began to cremate. They said, here, let God raise that up. How big is your God? God can raise it up 
however he wants. But cremation came out of liberal apostate theology. It is not a biblical doctrine. Uh, you, listen, it won't be a problem in the end. But if you want to do it right, then you should bury your loved one. That's how it should be done. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. I have two questions or two parts. Um, I believe that the Bible teaches that once the believer dies, he or she is with the Lord Jesus in heaven um, or in paradise because Jesus said from the cross today, you shall be with me in paradise. Well, my first question is in reference to 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, where it's referenced um, the believers who have fallen asleep yes. in Jesus. Uh-huh. So um, that part is in today you shall be with me in paradise. If you could explain those two differences. Great question. question. All right. What's, what's your second question? My second part is what are the believers that have died already? What are they doing now at the present time in heaven? Good and question. Just, All right. Uh, hang up and listen to you. So All right. Thank you very much for taking this question. Well, thank you for asking it. We do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Sleep in the Bible is describing not the state of the soul in a passage like this, but it's, state, it's describing the state of the body. The body is asleep, and what a beautiful metaphor. The newer translations say those who are dead. And again, the, the Greek text, text says asleep. Uh, the newer translations interpret the Greek word, uh, and they translate it dead. And indeed, he's describing a dead person, so that's fair, but there's more interpretation going on than is necessary. But I like the term asleep, just as God said it in its original, because indeed it describes what happens to a body. Just like last night, you laid yourself down in a bed and you got up in the morning Even so, someone will lay down your body in the grave if you don't get cremated. Um, But someday God will raise it up. So he says, about those who are dead or asleep, you don't have to grieve like the rest who have no hope. We grieve, but we don't grieve like pagans. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's what every true Christian believes, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ, the power of God to save you. If we believe that, and it's asked and framed in the grammar of the Greek New Testament in such a way as meaning you do, if we believe, or since you could say we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring, and the next two words clarify crisply and precisely that he's not talking about the spirit sleeping. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So the body is asleep, but the spirit is home with the Lord. And that's affirmed in many passages, like the one you mentioned, the thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradises. And that same word is used later to describe the final resting place of saints today. Paul says, I was caught up into paradise, into the third heaven. Same Greek word. So you could technically say that unlike Abraham's bosom that could be called paradise, you can also call the new place that we go to as paradise. Uh, but Paul will say in Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's his promise. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. When he writes the church at Philippi, 
he says, I'm kind of torn between two points uh, because on the one hand, I'd like to stay here and serve you. But on the other hand, I'd like to go home and be with the Lord for he says for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. By the way, to die is not a gain. If our body, soul, and spirit as Seventh-day Adventists falsely teach, if it all sleeps in the grave, death would be a loss because there would be broken fellowship for decades, maybe centuries until Jesus came back. Um, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but I am to live on in this flesh. If I do, he says, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire, here it is, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul makes it very clear, death for the believer is to depart and to be with Christ. And that's why he can say, the Lord Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Why? Because the moment you die, the person inside your human space suit goes home to be with Jesus. And for this, we say to you by the word of the Lord that we were alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. And he's coming back one of these days. He'll, they'll not proceed those who've fallen asleep because Christ himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's bringing that departed spirit back from heaven, and he's going to reunite it with the body that is in the grave. They're the first to come up, and those of us who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air with them. Um, you see people in the Revelation who have died during the tribulation, and they're at the th- throne of God praising the Lord and offering him thanks and, and adoration and ascribing worthiness to the Lamb who sits upon the throne, who purchased and bought our salvation. That will certainly be one aspect of what we're doing in heaven. But remember, heaven today is not heaven tomorrow. Um, the New Jerusalem or the Father's house, the place where a believer goes today, someday is going to literally physically descend from heaven and God's going to create a whole new heaven and an earth. And the New Jerusalem will sit on a new planet and that will become the capital city of the whole shebang that we might call heaven. And there's a lot that's going to happen during um, that time that we will do. We'll work. We'll do all kinds of things. We won't be sitting on clouds playing harps. But anyway, um, I have a series that I did on Bible prophecy in one of the um, one of the sermons I did is what is heaven like. And so if you go to the Search the Scriptures app that you can have on your phone and download, searchthescriptures.org. Don't confuse it with .com, a whole other organization. Search the scriptures.org app. You can have it on your phone. You can click on the tab that says, you know, Bible prophecy and one of those, what is heaven like? You can download it, listen to it on your phone or on your computer or however you'd like to get it. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. I called a minute ago about Proverbs eighteen twenty four. Yes. And, um... You, you did answer part of the question I was wondering, but my my main question is, what is it actually saying? Oh, okay, um, okay. Well, I, then I, then I would interpret it for you out of uh, 
out of the book of Proverbs as it reads in the New American Standard, because the New American Standard, as virtually all newer translations, is following not the Septuagint, the Greek translation, but it's following the Hebrew translation, the, the scripture that God inspired it in. God inspired the Hebrew text in the New American Standard. Something, again, that they were very limited in the time of, the, you know, the writing of the King James. And so they followed the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew text. A man of many friends comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer to a brother. You read that in the context of Proverbs, and he, he talks about people who are your friend for all the wrong reasons. And such people who have those kinds of friends will only come to ruin. But then he describes a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's a real bosom buddy. Some people would say, well, that's Jesus. Well, not in Proverbs mind, but certainly you could apply that to the Lord Jesus. But he's talking about a true friend who is as faithful as a physical uh, brother and maybe even more so. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next question, see if we can catch up and do a few more. Okay, we've uh, finally gotten to the point where we can read some questions that have come in over the Internet. Um, Joseph from Bar Harbor, Maine, would like to know, if God does not tempt one with evil, how should I understand Second Samuel 24, where the Lord incited David to count Israel, and in First Chronicles, where it tells us Satan moved him to do this? And why was this wrong, especially since God commanded Moses to take a census of Israel? I know there's an answer, and we look forward to your ministry here in Bar Harbor. Well, it, it's, a, it's a good question, and this is one of those texts that people will sometimes say, well, you see, we have a, a direct contradiction in the Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Uh, God inspired his word without error. He inspired it infallibly. We may not always have an explanation, uh, but just because we don't even understand something doesn't make it uh, false. And I cover this, by the way, in my new book, How to Prove the Bible is True. And it's just a little short primer that anyone can read in less than, you know, 45 minutes. And it's very thoughtful. There's a lot of reflection that could take place, but it will give you proofs for the divine inspiration of Scripture. When you read First Chronicles 21.1, and by the way, in my course on Bibliology, I have a whole section on alleged discrepancies in the Bible. Uh, passages that people say, well, there's a clear contradiction. Again, there are no contradictions. There's always an explanation. We read in First Chronicles 21. One, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba, even to Dan, and bring me the word that I may know their number. And Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king, are not they all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel. So his own general didn't want to follow the order because he knew it was contrary to the will of God, what God had said about not trusting in chariots and in numbers, but in the Lord our God, who is the one who gives us the victory. So it says Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. When you read the text here in First Samuel, Second uh, Samuel twenty-four, it says, "Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. In it, the anger of the Lord incited David against them to say, Go number Israel in Judah.' So it appears, on the one hand, Satan 
incited him. And on the other hand, it seems like God did. Well, again, Satan incited in his temptation, but God incited in his allowance of this temptation. In other words, the Lord let Satan tempt David, just like he uh, permits Satan to attack Job. Read Job chapter one, where God gives permission for the devil to attack Job to a point. And so this is very similar to to God even allowing an evil spirit earlier on in Samuel. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's just the book of Samuel. We break it down into 1 and 2 Samuel in our English Bibles. That's why the Old Testament in Hebrew has 23 books, because some books that we divide, they they combine as one. But in uh, 1 Samuel um, 16, if you remember, uh, an evil spirit came upon Saul. God allowed that evil spirit. and so here, the fact that, that David was counting his military men to see how many could fight was basically saying, I'm interested in my strength rather than in the Lord's strength. And he was trusting really in numbers rather than the Lord. And God repeatedly warns against such things in the word of God. Uh, there was a time to count when God gave specific directions to count. But David himself will write in Psalm 20 and verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And so throughout the Bible, God's allowance of something to take place is often described as having done, being done by the Lord. And so this is an example. So there's no contradiction here. They, they actually perfectly complement each other. Great question. All right. Very good. Time for one last question. All right. Um, a listener would like to know, they were in a conversation with a friend, and um, uh, let's see where did it go here, um, the, about how those who have rejected Christ before the tribulation would not have a chance to be saved during the tribulation. Uh, They want to know, how do the 144,000 in Revelation fit into this? Well, there are people in the text I would lead you to, and I have a whole sermon on this if you might find it helpful. Uh, Again, go back to my prophecy series and just uh, click on 2 Thessalonians 2. And uh, God there describes uh, people who will be deceived by the coming Antichrist, the Antichrist who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So clearly he's describing people who did not receive the truth so as to be saved. They heard it, they understood it, but they rejected it. And so if someone is thinking, well, when the Antichrist comes, and I know we're in the final chapter of the Bible Uh, I'll just get right with God. It won't happen because then the next verse says, and for this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. And so God will send a judgment from heaven upon those who had heard the gospel in clarity and power prior to the catching up of the church, and they will not believe. But during the tribulation period, there's a great multitude that John describes as the sand of the seashore who come to faith. Why? Because the great tribulation period called in the Old Testament, the time of Jacob's trouble is God's tool to bring Israel to faith. And there's 144,000 Jews who come to faith during that time. Uh, They will become the evangelists to the world. And millions and millions of people will believe. Most people won't, 
but there'll be a great number who will come out of the tribulation in genuine faith. We're out of time. Wish we could spend more time on that. Listen to the sermon. Go to the Search the Scriptures app. Have a great day.